So we're going to continue our series, our series called Destined to Dream. And I need to give you a little bit of historical background. How many of you like history? Are you got anybody history buffs out here? Thank you. I know some of you are. And so we're going to go back a ways in history. And so I, I, it, it sort of shapes how we got to our text, which is going to be in Isaiah chapter 6. And so in the history of Israel, okay, and, and I, I, I want you to pay attention, folks, Pay attention to what's happening in the world today relating to Israel, okay? Are you with me? Huh? Did you see what happened this week? Our president declared that the Golan Heights are governed by and the property of Israel. Nobody, nobody's declared that, okay? I want you, a, a, a few months ago, what happened? We, we moved our embassy from Tel Aviv back to Jerusalem. And what, are, what is Israel saying? There is no greater friend that Israel has than the United States, okay? Friends, we've got to pay attention. There's a history here, and God has a plan for that nation, okay? So up until for 1046 B.C., Israel did not have a king. They were a theocracy. What they had was a prophet who spoke on behalf of God. But at that point in their history, a thousand years before Jesus, the people begged the prophet Samuel, who was the voice of God to the nation, they begged him for a king. They said, Samuel, we want you to ask God to give us a king. We want to be like everybody else. And Samuel said, you don't understand. This is going to be terrible. You are not going to like this. And they said, we don't care. Whatever it costs, however much tax we have to pay, we want a king like everybody else. And so during the administration of King Solomon, his, or his son Rehoboam, rather, in 930 B.C., the, the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms. We had the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom that was called Judah. Now, Isaiah's prophetic ministry begins at the end of King Uzziah's reign over Judah, which was about 740 B.C., and Uzziah, just a brief note of history, he was placed on the throne at the age of 16 and he reigned for a total of 52 years. Second Chronicles 26 tells us that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and he sought the Lord. God gave Uzziah because he followed the Lord, because he sought the Lord, he did right in God's eyes. God gave him great success, and he became very powerful. Now, Judah was smaller than Israel, and, and in its heyday, the entire nation under David and Solomon had a, a larger force, but, but in Judah, the smaller part of it, their army under Uzziah reached around 300,000 trained soldiers. And so King Uzziah was, he was really not just well-respected, he was downright famous. In fact, I came across a word in scripture that I'll be honest, I had never really 
I'd never really thought of, okay? I'd never really made note of this word before having read it uh, because you just don't see it in the scriptures. Uh, But the Bible says in 2 Chronicles that, that Uzziah invented and made machines. He made machines. And he placed those machines in the towers at the corner of fortified cities. And those machines would shoot arrows. And they would sling stones a great distance. And under his leadership, Judah flourished incredibly. Under his leadership, they they rose to incredible heights uh, politically, financially, militarily. And then I read in in 2 Chronicles 26, 16, this is all just background information. It says, but after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So as a result of his disobedience, God inflicted Uzziah with full-blown leprosy, which uh, is a is a skin slash nerve disease, which what there there's no cure for, and was what you would be separated from people. It was a terrible thing, and from that point on, even beyond the death of the king, the hearts of the people became corrupt. And that's the point where we pick up in the book of Isaiah, chapter six, with a vision that Isaiah has. And according to the Hebrew lexicon, that word vision, it means a sight, a dream, a revelation, or an oracle. And Isaiah's vision, Isaiah's dream, is copacetic with Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10, with John's revelation in the book of Revelation. And I'll go back to that definition that I gave you from Barnes' commentary, that that it's a, 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 a prophetic vision so overwhelmed with power that a person is filled with the light of the Holy Spirit so as to be insensible of outward things and wholly taken up with the spiritual and the divine. That's what was happening to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And in his dream, he knew where he was. He was in the temple, what he would describe as the temple. And as you look at that word and you research that, that word, it literally, it, the, the, probably even the better interpretation would be in the throne room. So Isaiah chapter 6, where we're going to read from, is in the throne room of God. Now, some of us have dreams that we feel that God has placed on our hearts, and they are as of yet unfulfilled. You might even feel that God has passed you by and that the dream is almost dead. Maybe you feel like you've been in the ready position and you're just waiting for the gun to go off, for God to launch you out into his plan for your life. Maybe for you, God is still working on some of those small pictures in order to give you the big picture that's going to happen later in your life. But as we look at Isaiah, I believe that there's something vital here for us to learn from Isaiah's dream. And I want to give you five things that have to happen 
And those five things happen to Isaiah. Number one, my king has to die. Look at verse one of Isaiah six. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, that was a, a, a something that when, when things like that are said in scripture, it's not just a time stamp, okay? An author can say something and then that way everybody knows the time that he's talking about, okay? But he's not giving you this as a time stamp to determine the date that it was written, okay? Now, at this time, the, the country was in outward prosperity, but inwardly they were corrupt. The people had looked to their king for victory, for success, for prosperity. He created machines, okay? I, 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 I'll be honest, I didn't even do a search, but I think I can pretty confidently say that the Bible doesn't use the word machines other than here. Imagine that. You're the guy that's invented machines. He was famous. They looked to him. They looked to him for their victory. They looked to him for their prosperity. They looked to him as a leader. They looked to him and his fame. And that's what they were looking to. The eyes of the nation, even the region, were upon him, and his death would bring about a whole new era. There was a feeling when he died about what's going to happen to our people. There was a sense of anxiety and uncertainty. And I want to tell you this morning that it was the death of the king that ushered in Isaiah's vision from the Lord. You see, sorrow and loss and disappointment and pain have a mission to reveal to us God's awesome presence. And that wasn't going to happen for Isaiah until the king was out of the way, until those things that he had been looking to were gone. And when God wants to lead you to that place of that dream, he is going to have to help you remove some things that you've been looking to instead of to him. I didn't expect a lot of response. But there are some things that you and I are looking to and looking at, and all of our attention is on those things because that's where our prosperity comes from. That's where our success comes from. That's where our fame comes from. Maybe it's your ability. Maybe it's something that you do well. Maybe it's your income or it's a position. But you're looking to something or someone instead of looking to the real king. So my question for you this morning is, what are the things in your life that are keeping you from seeing the real king? In order for God to take you to that place of, of that dream being accomplished, you're going to have to let your king die. That thing that you're looking to other than God, that's going to have to come down. Are you with me? Do you see where I'm going with this? Number two, well, let me, let me, one more thing. Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and, ease, and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, getting those other things out of the way. Why? So I can see the real king. That's what happened 
in Isaiah's life. And so until those important things get out of the way, we're not going to be able to see the real dream. Number two, I must see. Let's look at the second half of verse one of our text in Isaiah 6. And I want you to read, I want you to get the, the full scope of this, would you? As I read this, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Now, the kingdom of Judah had lived under the blessing of God because initially Uzziah had followed God. They were enjoying the blessing of God. As I was doing some research, one writer said that it was like being by a frosted window. You get to enjoy the sunshine coming through that window. And yesterday there was good sunshine and it, didn't it just feel good? It's like enjoying the sunshine coming through that frosted window, but not being able to see what's on the other side. That was Judah's relationship with God. They were enjoying the blessings that were coming their way, but they weren't seeing where those blessings were coming from. How many of us, that's, that represents our relationship with God and maybe our relationship with our parents, okay? Or maybe our relationship with our spouse. We're experiencing the blessings of God, the warmth through the, 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 the frosted glass, but we just don't recognize where it's coming from. And in Isaiah's vision, God broke the glass so that Isaiah could see where those blessings really were coming from. Once the king was removed, the prophet was able to see into the throne room. Isaiah talks up that he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Writers believe that this was actually a reference to the throne of Solomon, that Solomon had a, a throne that was on numerous steps. And it was elevated so that the king was always higher than anyone else. It talks about the train of his robe. In other words, the fringes on the bottom of his garment that represented his glory. That it literally filled the king's palace. It filled the throne room of God. I, you know, when you think of it in physical terms, the train of someone's robe, we always think of a bridal train, okay? And, and kind of the longer the train, the, the more special, you know, that, that's kind of, you know, anybody watch a royal wedding? I, and I, I just think back over the years, for some reason I think of, of, of um, Diana's, Princess Diana's wedding, and that train was like, like three quarters of the length of the church, wasn't it? Something like that? Why? Because that's royalty, okay? Well, God's, in, in God's throne room, the train fills the whole temple. 
okay, fills the whole palace. Well, that wouldn't make sense in, in our physical dimension. Why? Because you couldn't move around. In the with the glory of God being the train, that's the way it was in the scripture. That literally his glory would fill the place. And when Solomon opened up an, a, a, his, the temple for the very first time, what happened? The glory of God, the cloud of God, descended on the temple and it was so thick that the priests could not do their work. It was like God saying, there's no room for you. It's just all my glory. It's all my glory. Think of that. In various cultures, there are, there are people in high position that would have runners that would go in front of them declaring who this special person that was going to be coming after them would be. The scripture says that, that in the throne room, in the palace of God, there are seraphim. They are angelic beings. And the, 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 the actual interpretation of the word seraphim means burning ones. So they weren't just angels, but they literally, it was like they were on fire. They were flashing with splendor as full of swift energy, McLaren says, like a flame of fire glowing with fervid love and blazing with enthusiasm. They, they, were, just, they were just on fire. And they were the ones that were, that were declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This morning as we worship, man, we were singing out the praises of God. We were worshiping the Lord. When I stepped off the platform here and we went back into that worship song, I was, I was standing next to Noah. Noah was singing his lungs out in worship to the Lord. Singing his lungs out, okay? You know, we're, we're, we're human. We, we can't keep that up forever. My vo I get up here to preach, and half the time my voice is already wrecked because of worship. Why? We have limitation. This picture that we see in the palace, the throne room of God, with those angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the, the, the doorposts and the thresholds are shaking. That's not one second, okay? And just, okay, that's what it was like on a really good crescendo. That's the picture of every second of every day. Are you with me? We, we couldn't handle that intensity. When we do music, it, it's got to rise and fall and it reaches a crescendo and then we back off. Why? Because we can't handle it. In the throne room, in the palace of God, it's just like that all the time. Those angels, those seraphim that are proclaiming in this vision, uh, it's declared that the train fills not, not the room, it's the whole earth. Okay, now I don't, I don't know about you, but once in a while, and in fact this happened uh, just uh, in the last week or so, um, in our house at least once a year we hear this, in, uh, this, there's a shaking that happens to our house, okay? Um, our upstairs bathroom has a metal roof on it, and there's a point in the spring where the sun begins to melt the snow, and all of that snow kind of comes off all at once, and it hits the deck, which is bolted to the house. And so literally on that day, somebody goes, what just happened? 
You know, it's like, it, it would be like the start of an earthquake in Marquette. You know, everybody, you think about, do I need to dive under the table here? What do I need to do? You know, because it's, uh, you know, we live in a home that's built in the UP. They're built pretty solid, okay? But we're not talking about a home that was built in the UP that the threshold shook. We're talking about the palace of the, the creator of the universe. I think he's got some pretty good uh, building codes up there in heaven. And yet, what was happening was shaking, was shaking the place. Isaiah's vision, it literally, it made God, uh, he, he understood that God was larger than he ever knew. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, this includes us, and under the earth and on the sea, and in all, uh, all that was in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Man, when that happens, we just want to let those praises out. And literally, that's going to shake everything. Why? We, we realize God is bigger than we ever imagined. So for us to have the dream that God desires for us, we need to get a bigger view of who God is. We need to be able to see God. We need to have a life-altering view of Jesus before that dream is ever going to come to pass. Number three. I need to be wrecked. Look at verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Being ushered into the palace throne room, Isaiah is overwhelmed with his sinfulness. And he cannot believe that in his condition, he was allowed to even dare look upon the Lord. He said, not only do I have unclean lips, he said, I come from a long line of people that have unclean lips. He recognized his sin, not only in his own life, but a gener generation after generation of being sinful. He was overwhelmed by his sin. He was wrecked by his sinful condition. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan confronted King David about the fact that he had taken another man's wife. And David's immediate response was, I have sinned against the Lord. We read his response in Psalm 51 where it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David was caught and confronted in his sin of adultery and murder and he repented. And there are some times when you and I need to be caught and confronted by the Holy Spirit for our sin. We need to be wrecked by our own sinful condition. 
If we're destined to dream, we need to experience that life-changing presence of God. And when those moments happen, we will be wrecked by the realization of who am I and our own sinfulness. And I love the promise of Scripture in John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so we don't have to stand before Him as a dirty, rotten sinner. We stand before Him as a sinner saved by by grace. Amen? We need to be wrecked by God. Number four, I need to get burned. Say burn. You got to let it hang out. Burn. Yeah. That's the way they say it today. Burn. Feel the burn. Isaiah chapter 6, now verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah was aware of his sinful condition, okay? But, he, but notice God doesn't leave him there. The seraphim brings the live coal and touches it to his lips. I want you to notice a couple of things. That seraphim, that angelic being, could not pick up the coal himself. He had to pick it up with tongs. Okay, He couldn't touch it. It was something that was going to bring forgiveness representatively to Isaiah. Okay, and, and for you and I, it's the blood of Jesus. Amen? That's that, that, that thing that forgives you and I, all right? And also, I want you to notice, okay, that the angel touched him in the very place where his, he recognized his sin was from. He said, I am a man of unclean lips. I come from a, a, a line of people of unclean lips. And that's exactly where the coal was touched by the angel. Are you with me? When we come before God and we say, God, I need your forgiveness, he knows exactly where to put it, okay? He knows exactly where our sin is, and he will touch us, and he will forgiveness or forgive us. Atonement comes through Jesus' sacrifice, through the shedding of blood, and, and, and it, it doesn't stop um, at the point of forgiveness. There's more to be done. As Paul said, he said, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to, to, in view of God's mercy to be a living sacrifice don't just go to the altar for forgiveness put yourself on the altar as a living sacrifice amen so in order for us to be used in the dream that we're destined for we've got to come in contact with the only source of forgiveness the world has ever known and that's the blood of jesus number five i need to enlist Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, he said, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Isaiah's king was dead and out of the way so he could finally see into the king's palace. He was wrecked by the awesome realization of his own sinfulness. He was cleansed by the forgiving power of God. He hears God's voice saying, whom shall I send? It's like God looking around. I, I think of a coach at the end of a game and his, his starting players are all fouling out of the game and he's looking down his bench and he's going, who can I put in the game? And we're down there at the end of the bench. We haven't been in all season. 
and we stand up and say, Coach, put me in. We want to get in the game. And that's how Isaiah felt. God, put me in. I know that I'm sinful. I know that I have unclean lips, but you've forgiven me. I'm ready. Put me in the game. And those who are destined to dream must be willing participants in God's purpose. Romans 10, verse 14 says, How then can they call on the one whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? The question is, are you willing to be sent? Got one. Are you willing to be sent? All right, that's at least a little bit better. You recognize the question that was being asked. But I want to tell you something that many times we want to, we hear an emotional plea and we say, God, sign me up. Yes, Lord, I'm, I'm your man. I'm your woman. I want to do what you're calling me to do. You've given me a dream. I want to do it. God, do it. Without going all the way back to the beginning of Isaiah 6 and getting our eyes off the things that we've been putting our trust in without being confronted by our own sin, without experiencing the life-changing forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? We've got to be willing to do those things. We've got to be willing for our king to die. We've got to be willing to get a bigger vision of who God is. We've got to be willing to be confronted by our own sin. We've got to be willing to go to the forgiving power of Jesus and then we're ready to say, I'm willing, God, send me. And I, you know what I pray? I pray today that in Silver Creek Church that there are dozens and dozens and dozens of men and women and young people who are ready to say, God, I'm willing, send me. Come on, let's stand. Father, I just thank you. I thank you, Lord, for the word that Isaiah spoke to us. I thank you for the vision that he had. I thank you for the awesome view into the the palace, the throne room of God. Today, God, I pray, give give us that view. I pray that the window that, that's, It's that frosted window. We've been able to feel a lot of those blessings, but we've not really seen on the other side. I pray break that that glass so that we get a real view into your presence, Lord. The Apostle Paul said, Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. We know that one day we will be in your presence. One day we will see you, and we will know you and be known even. And and Lord, I thank you for what's coming, but for now I pray that we would be men and women, that we would be young people that are ready to say, God, I am ready. Lord, send me.